Pathprojects.com. Go there and you can get some great trail running gear. It's so- true, Scott, because I just, as you're going to hear in this upcoming podcast, ran, well, a good portion of Tour de Jean's, and that is a 220-mile race with 90,000 feet of climbing, and I ran it in Path Projects, and so did Norbert. Who's Norbert, you ask? It was a gentleman I was standing next to in the waiting corral 930 runners i look over he's carrying a set of lakey poles and wearing path project shorts and says yes i listen to trn and i love my path project shorts me too i said we ran the whole race chafe free feeling fantastic in that gear and i also saw some post-race photos where you're doing a little sightseeing and i think i saw you wearing a path project t-shirt well and a hoodie as well I, I, I'm, I'm a path man on and off the course. <laughs> that hoodie is so good. I'm wearing it right now. I don't know if you noticed that, but I'm wearing right. my Path Projects hoodie. It is so comfortable, and it is just the right thickness. It, and, and it works, and it is soft and comfortable, and that's one of the great things that the material moves with you and not against you, and that's why I think it's chafe-free. So go to pathprojects.com, or you can go to Trail Runner Nation, click on the Partners page, and click on over by that banner. Scott, what are the chances of me standing next to Norbert wearing a pair of Path Projects at the Tour de Jean's in Italy? That's crazy. That's nuts. Harry's Razors. This episode's brought to you by Harry's Razors. Hey, were you the finest shaved person at the Tour de Jean's this year? Uh, there was a young lady that appeared to have a, a closer shave than I did, but besides her... I was the closest shaved runner. You know, Don, I've been meaning to talk to you because I need to order some new Harry's. Um, I, we've been using it. I've been using it, and I know I think you've been using it exclusively for probably the last five years. And I feel amazing with the, the products that they offer. I'll tell you, my daughter even uses Harry's razor. She's over here in Italy, and her she forgot a razor, and her friend mailed her a razor because she didn't want to live three months without it. Wow, that's amazing. And you can get your free trial set. They're so confident that you're going to like it that that they will give you a free trial shave set for free. All you have to do is go to harrys.com slash trn and just pay for the shipping. That's harrys.com slash trn. rxbar.com, that's where you can get great tasting food, real food. If you go to rxbar.com slash TRN, enter the code TRN, you can get 25% off. 25% off real food, Scott. 14 different flavors, a new one coming out, nut butter. Yeah, they have <laughs> they, they have nut butters now. Did you know that? No, I like it. They have no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or any kind of fillers. It's real food. And you'd be surprised, real food actually tastes great. Real food performs best, and it's great on the trail, great for snacks at work, great for for your kids. If they're looking for something to eat, throw them an RX bar and feel good about what they're eating. Go to rxbar.com slash TRN and enter the code TRN for 25% off your first order. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, of the wide, worldwide ultra running community, you are listening to nothing less than the greatest trail running nation podcast on earth. It is the Trail Runner Nation podcast. 
with me, a complete imposter here in London, England, and your two real hosts over there with a skeleton behind them very early morning in the studio. It's Scott and Don. All right. We ready? Yeah. There's a bunch of, like, old brothel hookers, like, buried out here. Yeah, thank you, Don. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. You know, you sound like a nice guy on this podcast, but... Uh, um, <laughs> but I know it's on the upper edge, and you guys have won a couple of awards, and... I've never prepped for a podcast, ever. Oh, that's what you're doing. Okay, we'll clear that up. That will, our, our, the, the group of the nation and podcast downloaders are very sophisticated. <laughs> they are. They're unlike any other group out there. They're tolerant. They, they uh, ignore our many imperfections, and they'll be able to substitute the word. No problem. <laughs> they will. All right. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining another edition of Trail Runner Nation. My name is Scott War. I'm Andy Jones Wilkins, and I'm Don Freeman. And and Andy, it, it just explain, just reiterate what you just said. This is kind of an interesting podcast. Why is it interesting? Well, it's uh, as we're recording, uh, we're spread out over nine hours worth of time zones. Scott, you're out in California, and it's six a.m. And I'm here in Virginia, braving the hurricane, and it's nine a.m. and uh, and Don is over in, in France eating croissants at 3 p.m. <laughs> is that how I'm supposed to say it? Croissant. <laughs> croissant. <laughs> Very good. How, how, is, how is the food, Freeman? Oh, you know, I've been, I've been eating uh, like a king, and uh, the food is fantastic. He's, he sent me some really cool photos of uh, he and his daughter next to the Eiffel Tower. And, it, I mean, it just looks like you're having a ball. Hey, I t- I, I've looked for a, uh, a good uh, uh, T-bone steak, but it's not served here. So there's something to be missed for back home. <laughs> well, have you been able Beef. to get some French fries at least? You know, they just call them fries here, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this, uh, this is uh, just a few days after the Tour de Jeans. And uh, this is to talk about the Tour de Jeans. I know that a lot of you have been following the the... Uh, the race, and um, we wanted to we wanted to get uh, Don on before he forgot. And that's why we're calling him from France. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's quite a race, and and uh, you know, as as much as you try to imagine what it might be like, you don't know until you get there and get in the middle of it. And it's it's very exciting that the people that are the, here and the race course is extremely different than anything I, I had imagined. Andy, I don't know. Have you have you raced overseas? Have you had the, the pleasure? I, I have not. Uh, but uh, after the last week or so, I am dying to do it someday, I have to admit. And it's it's so remarkable. It seems like each day I woke up and another one of my friends uh, finished the race. Uh, I was spread out over so much time that, uh, you know, I saw so-and-so at 78 hours and so-and-so at 84 hours and so-and-so at 96 hours. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it's difficult to wrap your mind around it. And that's why I'm thrilled that we're here talking to you about your experience. Um, so, Don, y- y- I've been watching you prepare for this race. And in in my opinion, because you had a training partner, Bob Crowley, um, he forced you um, to probably train for this race or prepare for this race better than any of the races I've seen you prepare for. Um, 
tell us about the course. So, you, you know, you know that there's 90,000 vertical feet of climbing. You've seen photos of the mountains. Uh, you know that it's uh, over 200 miles. You get there, and what did you find? What surprised you the most about this course versus well, what you had planned for? Yeah. Well, well let, let's just go ahead and, and uh, state the obvious. Uh, I beat all of your friends, Andy, at about 72 hours, but I didn't finish. <laughs> when, <laughs> when, they did. I didn't. And it's the first race, uh, you know, I, that I had not finished. I've raced, you know, probably 20 years worth of ultra running and, and I have a dozen, 100 milers and, and was lucky enough to complete the Triple Crown. But um, still not uh, not enough for me to 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 get this one done. Uh I felt like, and I had stated in a text, in the, even on a Facebook quote, that I, I felt like a very prepared soccer player that showed up to a hockey game. You know, <laughs> I was, I was ready. You know, I mean, I, I, I knew the net, I knew the 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 field. I had knew that there were teams with different colored jerseys. I was ready, but I show up and somebody hands me a pair of skates and a, <laughs> and a stick, and I step out on the course and it's full of ice, and. That's what I felt about Tour de Jean. It's it's very very doable if you prepare yourself both both mentally and physically. I don't think it's out of reach, but I think the first attempt is is a real eye opener, and it was for me. Had you said I had prepared very well, and and I did for what I imagined a trail run, but this is much different. It's a mountain run, and mountain runs are different than trail runs. You know, trail runs give you an opportunity to to uh, shuffle along and climb some and run some down. And they're much more groomed than what we had here. Very technical and very steep with, imagine, three to four, even five hours of climbing, followed by three to four to five hours of descent. And at the top, you get some boiled ham, some cheese, maybe a cracker, and you're rewarded with the same at the bottom as you are at the top <laughs> and repeat and repeat. And I had... You know, you could add some apricots or prunes in there if you'd like. Those were those were abundant, but each aid station was about the same. It had the same same aid station fare: great ham, great cheese, uh, one kind, and and that's, <laughs> that's what we had. So, I'm not making any excuses, and I had the greatest experience. Um, I think looking back, and you said preparation, I would prepare much different. There was no reason to run. I think in the first, you know, 100K, I had run probably about 5K of it, and that's it. There was, it's mostly a, a hiking course out here on Tour de mm. Jean. Uh, different than UTMB and many of the other races, it, it is, it's, in speaking to other people, because of course I haven't done those, um, just a lot of, a lot of hiking on this, and technical hiking, so very, very hard. When you, when you say technical hiking, um, I mean, I, I've seen some photos of people climbing and uh going up and down just very rugged ridges i mean tell me about the trail i mean was there a trail did you follow a trail oh well marked you know uh it was uh it was marked with yellow flags there wasn't a moment that you couldn't look up and and know that you were either on course or shortly see a flag there was also green paint that they liberally painted on rocks you would think right that you know, we're, we're trying to be very careful with any type of graffiti or just uh, assaulting our landscape, right? We, we were conscious of that. But 
that they had arrows and TOR drawn on for Tor, drawn on old fences that were probably as old as, you know, 500 years old that were just there forever. They just mark it up. And so um, the it was easy, easy, very easy to, to follow the course. Uh, established trail like single track, yep, that was there. And in areas that you kind of had to just make your way across, uh, the, the marks were, were, were just fine. Poles, essential. Who carried poles? Everyone carried poles, wow. except for the guy that broke his pole. I saw a half a pole sitting on one of the climbs. So that pole didn't make it. So you, you want to make sure you're carrying some durable equipment because, you know, poles for climbing are just essential and, and for safety because there are times that did, you need to have that third touch find, point. Don, did you find yourself even, you, you mentioned you were hiking so much of it. Did you find yourself even using the poles on the downhills? Uh, you know, the the, the great uh, mountain runners, um, not that I, in the beginning I might have been around a few great mountain runners, but the rest left me. But the the, uh, the the downhill philosophy is they're not using poles going down because they'll okay. slow you down. You don't need them. And so poles are really for climbing, and, and then they strap them away and put them away. That's what I observed. Okay. With with respect to the, the virtually hiking the entire thing, was that – for the, I assume there are virtually no flat parts. So you're either going up or you're going down. On the downhills, is it is it the technical nature of the trail that means you're hiking it instead of running it, or is it so steep that you can't run it? You know what what uh, what is it that that slows you down on the downhills? You know, are, are the front the front of the the front of the uh, of the racing group were probably managing very well going down because they were. They were probably since five years old, they've been out in the hills, you know, and, yeah. and they probably did they just touch and go and they bound down the hills, selecting their spots and touching the foot and selecting the next and hitting that spot. So beautiful to watch, almost like a dance as they go down compared to a, a, a Mack truck like myself that was probably <laughs> putting the pole down first and, and then putting my foot next to my pole. I, you know, that, that takes longer to do to run like that. So I probably had a very good time. Um, but they, they were, uh, what, what was really impressive is I just mentioned that some five-year-olds were out there, um, since five families were out there, just entire families that were hiking and oh, really? they, they would take them out there and they would all to uh, every single one of them, as you came by would say, allez, allez, die, 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 which means go. I didn't realize in the first, I thought they were wishing death upon me. They <laughs> bravo, bravo. And they'd look at your, your bib. Bravo, Don, bravo. Allez, allez, die, die, die. Every time you pass somebody, it was, it was so endearing and so um, embracing that they were sharing their mountain. And they understood what you're trying to accomplish. And they were rooting for you. So you had a, a, uh, um, a constant cheering section every time you pass somebody. It was very, very cool. So, so the, the, the people around the race, maybe, you know, just hikers, not even just the, not even the trail runners, they knew what was going on. The entire town knew what was going on. The, the town opens up to this, this, uh, event and there are signs that are just hanging everywhere. Welcome toward Jean. So I, uh, Bob Crowley that was here earlier, uh, arrived earlier than I did said, um, every race either was Tor, Tor de Drent or TRD, you know, T, I don't know which numbers. Edit that out, Scott, and UTMB, <laughs> what, whatever it might be. They had signs up there that were mass produced that were welcoming that race into the town. And everyone knew that you were racing this, that, that, uh, that saw you and wishing you luck. And they were, they were, they were happy for you. So are there multiple races? 
there's like a two weeks worth of races and this just fit oh, into wow. the scheme. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Um, it sounds, it sounds like as well that quite literally this is a global gathering that they're, uh, from what I understand, the people who come to Tour de Jean's come from all the continents and, you know, literally, uh, what, 50 or so countries are actually represented in the 800 or so runners? You know, I, I watched one of the videos where it said 75 different company, uh, countries. And, and And everyone had their name on their front or their back on their bib. And then you could see the, uh, the country that they came from. And so, yes, you know, you're running from with a runner from Japan and then China and then Argentina and Denmark and Germany. And, you know, on it goes. I, there's only 27 of us from the U.S. So how is that going? You know, now you're the foreigner uh, in a strange land that doesn't speak English. How how was that? How was the communication barrier as you're going into aid stations and looking for help? And how, how did that all work out? Well, you know, when there's only ham and cheese, it's not hard to communicate in an aid station. <laughs> but but uh, what, what's, a, what's a bit different, let's talk about the communication, and then I'll talk about the, the communication at aid station, is you know, generally when we're running out there in an ultra run, we can talk to just about anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, how you doing? You know, hey, you know, I've seen you before. What's happening? Where are you from? Tell me about your family. There's some discussion, and, and uh, there isn't any anybody that you can't communicate with but i would go for it long periods of time because there wasn't any english spoken out there you know if you're there from italy or from france or you know few people had uh, english as their as a, a way to communicate so there was a lot of uh silence out there and hand communication you know the you can you can you can express a lot with facial communication and with gestures and and there was a a uh, of a bond, uh, a, a feeling, a sense of we're all here for the same thing. And you could ask somebody if they needed something just by looking at them and you know putting your arms, hands up, and going shaking, you know, put your shoulders up at the same time. And if they needed something, they could tell you what they needed. And there was this. I heard before I went out there that it's not like it is in America. People aren't going to be helping. Absolutely not. That mm. that was just for information people out there were so generous i had a man i had fallen and um i caught a toe as coming down a hill one of the times i got to run right and as i came down where's the what's the one of the last things you want to do besides hitting your head you don't want to hit your knee on a rock and every time you land in the dirt you just think to yourself ah at least it wasn't a rock i mean that's what goes through my head every time and i fall and it's a soft landing. I go, oh, if I'm going to land, that's the spot to land. How nice. And that's many times, much of the time, how it works with the catch the toe and fall. But this time, all of my weight, all of my momentum came down right on my left knee. Crack. And I stopped. And I thought, and I, as I land on the ground, no one's behind me. No one's ahead of me. I'm just laying there. I'm probably, you know, 50, 60 hours in the race. And I think, oh, man, this is it. I'm done. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in the middle of this mountain. And I've hit my knee. I don't even know if it's going to, I think maybe I could have shattered my, my kneecap. Who knows? Cause I hit hard. And, and so I start moving my knee and it works. And I think, well, I guess, I guess I'm okay. I stand up on it, no sharp pain and I can bend it and I can put weight on it. So no problem. Um, and, and so I, I lucked out there 
I make it to maybe the next aid station or the one following to have my ham. And there was this guy that comes up to me and he, he looks at it and he, he says, um, he doesn't say anything because he doesn't speak English and I don't even know what country he's from. But he looked at it and pointed at it and he, he asked me to put it up on the bench. Now, this is a fellow runner. And he takes out his medical kit and he pulls out some hand sanitizer and he squeezes hand sanitizer on it, right? But remember... Remember that study back in, in Western states where at the beginning they'd pinch your finger and they would say, how much pain do you feel? And so, well, that's a, you know, it's a seven or eight, right? And then throughout the race, they'd pinch it with the same intensity and ask you what you felt. And it would go down from a seven or eight because your body was getting tired of hearing pain. And it would start not to listen so much to the pain. So the interest of the study or the findings were that with the same amount of pinching intensity that your tolerance for the pain improved. Right. So now I'm 60 miles into this thing and I've got all kinds of pain. And he's I think, oh, no, this is going to be very painful for him to put hand sanitizer on his open wound and rubbing <laughs> it in with his gauze. Right. I, I didn't feel a thing wow. <laughs> deep into this Western state study. <laughs> so uh, um, and then he then he puts uh, um, some other stuff on it and he he breaks out this this. This gauze, and I said, doctore, and he goes, no, no, doctore. I go, my doctore, and he shakes his head, and he, then he puts his gauze on it, and he puts his tape all around it, and then he taps it three times and taps me on the back, and he says, good, <laughs> gives me a thumbs up. Um, now, wow. If, if that isn't, you know, no communication between people, if that isn't trail love, right, for lack of any better term, it's just, wow, it empowered me, I felt good. It fell off shortly after because <laughs> it takes the whole too well, but I put it in my pocket because it was something he gave me, and it, it made me feel stronger. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to keep it. It wasn't for discarding. It was important. And if I saw him again, I was going to try to stick it on. <laughs> <laughs> stick it back on your knee. <laughs> Absolutely. Don, when Don, when we've when we've chatted, I think this is related. When we've talked before about your your two hundred mile runs in the United States, and particularly. Uh, doing the Triple Crown, you talked a lot about sort of the bonds that develop during the course of an event as you kind of group up with people, particularly at night or if the weather gets a little bit sketchy. I, I know that was an experience I had even at a hundred miler uh, at Bighorn a, a couple of years back. Um, was there something similar uh, at Tour de Jeans, or is it a little bit different sort of culturally and uh, as the because of the language and the communication in terms of that sort of brotherhood that develops on the trail? Well, I, I met Erin, uh, who's a female runner, and her husband, who was the crew, uh, Francesco. And since it was, she was from Canada, so there was a natural, you know, um, language. And we just, we communicated and shared stories. I knew all about, as you do, you learned about their family and about their, their, their romance. And as, as they fell in love and got married, I learned all of these things. And so when Francesco and I saw him, um, I, I knew all of his background, how he'd, he'd been he'd been on a on a water polo team and played for the the, the uh, for for his home country and he was going to go to the Olympics, but he didn't because he's in a in a in an accident in a motor vehicle accident. So I knew all these things about him, and when I showed up and told him some of these things, he was quite alarmed that I knew so much of his history. Um, and then, and then after, we, we had run together. As it, as it happens, you run together, and then you go to sleep, and things happen, and you get separated. And 
and these long races, people show back up. It's like, how could we still be together after <laughs> I slept and you slept in a different spot and here we are together again? That would be very hard to coordinate if you set a watch or said something like, I'll see you in like uh, uh, 14 hours. <laughs> be pretty tough, but it happens. Um, and as it turns out, we went to dinner, uh, we exchanged pictures, and um, we've uh, we've shared contacts and we'll so we'll stay connected at other races and other events so it happens right. whether you're here or there it's a it's a you know the trail community is a special a special tribe as you were going up and down these mountains i in my mind i'm picturing um you going through a lot of towns little tiny towns um ski towns farming towns how how much time did you spend in towns um you you would run to, from uh, a mountain down into a valley, and there's always a town. And so you would run through um, some kind of small little town that you would that the, just like you picture, just like you've seen the pictures with cobblestone streets and houses on each side, and you just kind of make your way through that. And water is so plentiful throughout the whole course. I had two bottles, and that's all I ever used. I was never out of water because there's there's so much in the Alps there. The, the mountains we were in, so many just running running uh, streams. But I never dipped my bottle into a stream. It was it was it was um, by like a, a residence or a farmhouse, and there was a bathtub with water pouring into it. And you would just hold your bottle up to this constantly flowing stream of water through the like a garden hose, and you just fill back up. So I was never never without. It was clean and never tasted ever foul it was it was just brilliantly clean and perfectly cool and so there was never a need for water so two bottles was sufficient easy you know I, and every time i refilled i had some left on me what about did, the, did, oh, did, did you did you have any uh uh sketchy weather uh, you know you hear about with utmb every year you hear about storms that roll in or you're down in the valley and it's really nice but then you get up to the top of a ridge and it's a howling gale did you, did you have any experiences like that no excuses like that for me Andy. <laughs> you know um <clears throat> This was a year, if you're going to complete it, this is the year. It was just ideal weather. There was, it wasn't cold at night. Uh, I had a puffy jacket, never had to put it on. Um, if the biggest problem was keeping dry, and it's dry from sweat, you know, because you would climb, climb, climb up a hill and, or mountain. We don't need to call these hills. They're legit mountains. And you'd climb up, and you would just, I would just be drenched with not sweating down my face, just your your layer that you have next to your skin is just wet and so it gets a little windy up top and then it gets cold and if you're going to go to sleep you need to always keep a dry a dry set of clothes in your pack and i'll talk about the mandatory gear that they have um so i would learn to as others did um hang a set of clothes off the back to always be drying so in case you know once it dried you can step it back in the bag but you'd want to give yourself the option of having dry clothes along the way they had mandatory gear, about nine pounds, eight, nine pounds of mandatory gear by the time you put it all in. Those rain pants, mandatory. At, at the beginning, they they uh, they would give a mandatory gear check, but they didn't with everybody. There was 931 runners or something that were uh, on the, the starting list. And so it would be very hard to go through everybody's gear and look at all these details. We'd still be getting checked in. 
But just the risk of them thinking that you may mandatorily get pulled to check your gear was enough risk uh, for us to make sure that we carried it. And it was all there for good reason. Um, I had rain pants. I had a rain jacket, thanks to Arteryx, who sent the greatest, lightest jacket, and I appreciate them doing that. I had uh, a set of merino wool long uh, top. I had a merino wool set of pants that were a warm layer besides, you know, the shorts that you wear, of course. I had, um, they had made you have some, made you had some gauze, uh, some tape type gauze, some uh, uh, crampons that I never used, which I'm glad that I didn't have to use, but they needed to be on board. And so uh, you had to have enough to carry 1.5 liters of water, enough containers, they didn't have to have the water in it. And, you know, other other types of, of, of gear that, that were there, but those were some of the mandatory warm weather stuff. And I had the puffy jacket, but never needed any. Did they uh, require? Did they require like an extra headlamp and stuff oh, like that, or uh, yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah, you had to have an extra headlamp and then an extra set of batteries for the headlamp that you use. So, question: Yes, uh, Don. Um, you, you know, we. I had the privilege of being around you as you were training and stuff like that. And one of the things was is. Uh, we went out on a run shortly before you left with the actual pack that you used and with all the gear and it was a big pack. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it was, it was quite bouncy. In fact, you were pretty ingenious in, in creating, uh, uh, your own, uh, modification, putting a, a, a waist, a waist strap around there. So it wouldn't bounce around. How, how did that affect your running? Did you get used to it? Was it, was it a hindrance to you? No, it was a great pack. Um, I, I used the uh, the Ultimate Direction uh, Adventure Vest, the 4.0, the newer one, and it had great pockets. Uh, one of the mandatory pieces of gear was an ID. You had to have your ID, Andy, as you were talking about mandatory gear. But it was a great pack. It, it carried everything well and, and absolutely essential. You needed that webbing on the back because that allowed me to hang things and use my own personal clothesline. So uh, I put that waist um, strap on there because I thought I was going to be an ultra runner, but I was just an ultra hiker. So it really wasn't necessary. <laughs> so, so you actually, you actually didn't use the belt. I used it, but I didn't need it. <laughs> oh, okay. Did they make you carry a phone, uh, and, or, and, and did you have some sort of tracking device like a spot tracker? Yeah. Everybody had a spot tracker. Uh, that was mandatory piece of gear. You had to give 20 euro, to, um, when you when you picked it up and then you would return it and they give you your 20 euro back and okay. so um, you also had to have a phone and have the map the GPS map uploaded on it so you could see where you're where you were at any given time but not necessary I never even looked I never even considered for a second am I lost and that's you know being um, by myself quite a bit out there I didn't need to need to Pull that resource. Trail was well marked. I, I'm I'm glad you didn't have to pay for that uh, GPS tracker that you uh, gave a deposit for because every time I looked you up, you were in the middle of the Indian Ocean. I think <laughs> <laughs> there was no tracking Don Freeman on that course. Well, that, as it turns out, I'm glad you couldn't because <laughs> I guess I didn't do very well. <laughs> and that's you know. Looking at what would I do different? Maybe maybe that's at the end of the conversation. Maybe you guys have some more questions. Maybe I should leave that alone. Um, go so ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, I I think I think we, we might as well dive right into that uh, because 
it is it is amazing sitting here talking to you, Scott, and I know you really well. I mean, it, we've been talking for half an hour, and and if someone were to just start listening to this conversation, they wouldn't necessarily think by the tone of your voice and the laughter that you actually are talking about a race that you didn't finish, mm. which I think is something that I'd like to talk a little bit about. So a, a lot of times when we uh, when we start races with a full intent to finish them and then fail to finish them, there's a lot of learning from that, but there's also a certain amount of regret and a certain amount of trying to unpack what went wrong. And perhaps you've done that, but what I also can't help, and I think Scotty agrees, can't help but notice is, you know, there's a certain amount of buoyancy and excitement in your attitude towards this race that uh, is is somewhat unusual for other DNF conversations I've had with people. So mm. let's per- unpack the DNF. Uh, I called it in our text exchange, uh, the, the, the anatomy of a DNF. How did it happen? And how uh, how is it that uh, just several days later, you've got such uh, such a great attitude? Well, uh, you know, it, I, I did. I thought about it and I was I was competing against a competitor and that competitor is the mountain. And that mountain is strong and it is serious and it is severe. And it would be very arrogant for me to feel that I was that I cheated myself or I didn't perform to a level that was adequate when she, the mountain, is so tough. And I respect her so much that I was like it was like it was like showing up against a maths a master chess player or or a Hall of Fame pitcher. And being arrogant enough to think, how could I not? How could I strike out against this pitcher? Well, that's the best pitcher in the world. <laughs> it's going to throw you a curveball that you've never seen before, and a fastball that moves like you've never seen. I was I was confronted with a mountain and conditions that I was not even aware of in my wildest imagination. I don't feel I failed. I don't. I feel like I was surprised. I feel like I was. I was. Uh, um, it was it was a, a delight in a sense to see the majesty of it, to see how awesome that course is, and I just didn't come with the right with the right equipment, you know me my mindset my I had the right gear in my pack, but I didn't know what I was walking into, I didn't do a lot of reconnaissance, you know I show up which has been my you know, what I've been able to get away with you know all these years of just showing up and figuring it out. You know, I, I really didn't didn't have a clue of what and maybe that's wrong. So if anybody's listening, don't do that. If you come out here, really, really study and learn and think and and get prepared in the very best way. Call people that have done it and and become inquisitive. But I, I don't feel defeated. I feel um, lucky to have to have been introduced to this mountain. So, so, so you bet. weren't you weren't brought down by the by the usual uh, causes of DNFs like uh, blisters or oh. trashed quads or uh, stomach turning upside down. I mean, the, the what I call the holy trinity of ultra running. Your feet and quads and stomach were were intact when you when you had to stop. Well, I mean, I I, I lost my stomach at one point, but that's part of the game. You know, I saw. Uh, Scott um, and his wife Donna sent me a, a pizza. Somehow it showed up with with signature on it from Scott and Donna. 
through my uh, my crude um, Donna Nicardo, who we know who's been on the podcast before, who successfully ran TDT out here a week before. Very very tough Irish woman runner, and uh, she delivered the pizza to me as part of my crew with Scott's signature on it. And I re- I saw that bell pepper again, and so the <laughs> next morning, so so that. That, that didn't defeat me. Heck, we've worked through that. Hey, but so, I, I, I want to answer the feet question because yeah. Don sent me a picture as, of his feet after he timed out, and they were beautiful. He sent me a, a picture of the bottom of his feet, and I was in awe how good looking those feet were. They're better looking than my feet right now. <laughs> Thanks to squirrels, not butter, and gingy socks and ultra shoes. I mean that combination of zero friction with the squirrels, not butter, the insulation from those in gingy socks and a wide toe box allowed for perfect conditions for my feet. I'm I'm so, I'm, I'm I'm just surprised with all of the down, you know, just coming down those steep inclines or declines jamming your toes you had no black toes you'd had no blisters i don't understand that well one of the things that i did in speaking to john von hoff fixing your feet book and he was out at western states talking about making sure that you manicure your toes and file them so that the first thing they hit is the end of your toe and never a nail because if the nail hits first it pushes back in the in the bed of your toe you end up with the black toe and things coming off so um you know, I observed a lot of the a lot of the safety rules to make sure that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You, so I were my quad shot. <laughs> you know, Andy, as as they say, Western States is a quad burner, right? Coming down if you're coming from Flatland, and I'm thinking Western States is not a down course. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of down out here, and I never lost my quads at Western States. I'm losing my quads out here. I would have much rather climbed. Then mm-hmm. go down. You know, cl- the coming the down is was the hard part on the knees and the quads. They were tired and they were shot. I'm not, I'm not going to say they weren't. I was fatigued there. Um, going up and up, it just it just never ends as you're climbing and climbing and you you climb up into a town and you see a road and you in some instances you're climbing through these back towns. These Europeans are tough. These Europeans are crazy. You know, I thought that. We were the toughest and the bravest, right? And we decided to get in a boat and go to America. That's that's the history I knew. That's what I conjured up in my head. Here's what happened. Here's the reality. The Europeans recognized the weak, put us on a boat, and sent us to America. <laughs> these guys are crazy. Um, and so we climb up these steps, and these steps and these walls along, fences alongside of you made of rock that you're thinking, how do these people build this? How tough must our ancestors here be, have been to hand place these rocks that have been there for 500 years or better, and they're still in service? And then we'd climb up step after step after step all the way up. And how wide was that course? You know, it was probably uh, five to seven feet wide of these steps. And you climb, 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 and you crest, and you get to a road, and you cross the road and you go, finally, I'm in town. It's just, it's just some residents. And then you go, you go across the road and you climb again. And you do this for the three to five hours that I was talking about. And then you finally get to the top. So those climbs were, 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 uh, were 
doable and possible is the downs. Now, when you had to get back down the other side, that would finally fatigue you and wear you out. So when we talk about the, the Holy Trinity, is that what he said? The Trinity, yeah. the, yep. the top three, right? I was, my stomach was fine. I didn't have any trouble putting food in. I didn't run low on that or, or fluid. Um, quads were sore, but that's pretty to be expected. Um, what was the third one that Andy the mentioned? Stum- the stomach, the quads, and the feet. Oh, and the feet were good. So what's my excuse, right? What, what happened, Freeman? How come you didn't finish the race? I thought I was four to five hours in front of cutoff, mm-hmm. um, and, and I was pretty happy. And, and I'm with Aaron, and we were running with some, the female runner I talked about earlier, and we were with some uh, experienced Italian and uh, French runners. And I said, how are we doing on time? And she said, oh, we're doing fine on time. And I said, well, good. Um, are you sure? Just because I was just you know wondering, because I think I had some text coming in from Donna that said, hey, you better hurry up. We need to get to X point by X point in time. And I thought, well, Donna's she certainly doesn't know as much as these European runners that are up here. And they say we're four to five hours, four hours up. And I went from thinking I had all kinds of time to out of time. I thought I was in awesome shape at one moment. And within 15 minutes, my world flipped to you're not going to make it. I went, I thought, how am I four hours up? and feeling confident and feeling like I can manage this thing. And there's going to be a, a reunion for me in uh, Comayer at the end of this race it, eventually, you know, in a few days. I've got everything dialed in. And then we get up there to the top of this refugio because that's where these refugios are, these aid stations essentially that are built into the mountains that are places where people camp or they come and they, you know, they can sleep there, they can, they can eat there, they're just – there are established um, buildings within, within the course because people do this these things. And I came into that aid station, and then uh, Donna was there, read me the riot act, and then I was a certain pace that I had to get down to the backside. And then here, here's what happened. Here's where I broke. I said, I'm half, I've got into this thing 75 hours. Potentially, I have 75 more hours of this, of this, this brutal climbing, this severe conditions, I'm not going to do this to myself for 75 more hours. And I didn't, it was the first time at 75 that I learned I was behind time. I thought I was, I was in fine time before that. And in many of our races in the United States, we learned cutoff early. You know, you, you get confronted with cutoffs maybe a quarter of the way, 25 miles into the race. You may kind of learn where a cutoff is. Through the, the, you can call it generosity or cruelness, whichever way you'd like to look at it. I didn't learn until 75 hours into the race. It was the first time they had a cutoff. It was the first time they wanted you to enjoy this race, regardless of your Mm -hmm. um, abilities, for at least 75 hours. It wasn't like at 30 hours or 24 hours, they'd start ringing a bell and saying, you slow people out. So I really felt like I was in great shape. And I think I was. I was crushed um, emotionally, and then my physical piece started to get embellished with this negative emotional piece that went through, saying 75 more hours of this, Don, 75 more hours of potentially falling, this hard course. This I just started building everything up, and there wasn't enough time, really, for me to sort it out. And we're supposed to work through these things, right? That's what we learned, to work through them. 
in retrospect, I didn't look through that. I just, I just surrendered. And that's not common and not, char- not my character, but that's what happened. I just couldn't see past 75 more hours. And there was an exit, a button to push. You know, I didn't want to go through another another day and then push it. I just I just said, well, that's enough. I've done it. How, how, how long was that process? In other words, did you... Did you drop in that refugio or did you did you sit and contemplate this for a while? Were you contemplating it for a period of time on the course or was it more of a, 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 a like a switch was flipped and you were like 75 hours more? Nope, not for me. I'm done. It was a flip of a switch, Andy, mm, which yeah. is, you, you know, and you always learn something from a race and you always know that you're supposed to work through things. And I. You know, I read a Facebook uh, um, a quote or a comment from the, a race that Jeff Browning just did, and he said he was working through a hard spot, and these two shall pass. And you know, I sh- I should have applied that, and and I have in the past. I wouldn't have made it through the Triple Crown or or any endurance race that we've done if I didn't apply that. But for some reason, I felt satisfied, and I felt, I, I guess, I just cracked. I just got weak. Well- Part of the reason I ask is, I, and I know Scott remember we we both remember distinctly the conversation we had with you when you when you were in I, I forget which part it's which Moab. leg of the of mm-hmm. Moab and you and you took that video of yourself yeah uh, talking to yourself and you were sitting on a rock in a in a puddle of goo and ready to quit and somehow that process. Uh, of of making this little video of of your pity your personal pity party uh, got you out of that and it sounds like in this case that 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 wasn't really an option is that could you draw a parallel to yeah. to that of course yeah. cutoffs weren't an issue that time either that's it I'm glad you brought that up because had I been for if I had that four hours that I thought I had um, I would have time to work through it. But at that moment, that flip of a switch, I didn't have any room. And I didn't realize I didn't have room. I just, you know, I was, I looked around and, and people can identify this with, I believe. I looked around and I saw fellow runners that were strong looking athletes. And when you're running around strong looking athletes, you think I must be doing well. Look how strong these runners are and how fit they are and how conditioned and capable they are. I must be okay. I've moved into a group now that if I'm running with these runners, I must be doing fine. And so I was under that impression that I'm up in time and I'm around strong people. But to do this race and to be out there even for 75 hours, you've got to be looking tough and you've got to be, you know. And so um, at the Moab example, I had my self-pity party there, but I had time to pull it out and I could reason that I had to do it. But my switch flipped because there was no chance to do that. I thought, there's really no time to sleep anymore. There's really no time to sit and have my pity party. There's no time to take a rock and take in food and put myself back together. There's no room for air. I'm going to have to race cutoffs in this mountain for what I've done times two. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And, and I just, and once you make that, once you make your mind up, then it's done. You know, for me anyway, once once I committed to I'm finished, then I was finished. I Maybe a good a great question. Then as I look back, um, do I regret that? 
And do I wish, would I push through that? And I asked myself that at that moment when that switch was flipped, will you regret this? Will you call back and you've come all the way to Italy? I've never been overseas. You know, this is a once in a lifetime trip. Maybe not. Maybe I'll get to come here again. But to do this race, it was your first. Are you going to accept that switch? Are you going to be okay with it? And I promised myself that I would be. Regardless of how much you try to convince yourself later, remember this moment and stand by your decision. Don't second guess. Is this your decision or isn't it? And it was. And I am okay with it. And so there are no regrets. Honestly, I was... As we started the conversation, I was I was um, challenged to one of the toughest mountain ranges on the planet that I've ever seen, and um, round one mountain. And and, and I, I I will verify, you know, in in the times that I've spoken with Don during the race and shortly after the race, and even up until today, um, I haven't sensed any regret, not one iota of regret. And I, I think that's uh, uh, a testament to his character that he made the decision and um, and stood by it. It's part well, it's of Don's respect, character. It's respect for that mountain. And if you saw it and you looked at it and the beauty and the reverence and the size, it would be hard to be. Um, it would be. It would be wrong to be mad at yourself because she's a real a real competitor, Andy. Well, then Don, we have to look ahead because obviously you are. Uh, you are you are at peace with this decision, which I think is actually inspiring to I know Scott and I and probably everybody listening. Um, but and I won't ask because it sounds like it it would be a question mark if you if you have if you feel as though you have un, unfinished business with that race over there. But what what's next for you now? I mean, you uh, you know, you've You've had this incredible journey, the, the, the return, the, the, the 200 milers, the, the triple crown, the, you know, I, I think it's safe to say the training you put into this over the summer is, is more structured and intense training than you've done maybe ever. Uh, as, you, as you look ahead now, uh, what's next? You know, uh, we went to Colorado and uh, enjoyed, you know, three or four days of, of the, the mountains there because we do have some mountains in, in our in our land over in the United States. And and I, I, I would love to take this fitness that I have and 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 put a pack on my back and and move from spot to spot. I'd love to get Scott out there and, and, and join friends like you yourself or whomever and bring people and, and just do some do some uh, some fast packing. And just uh, you know, enjoy enjoy the mountains. I think that would be wonderful. I don't think it always has to be a bib, and I don't mm-hmm. think it. I think it just you know some of the the community benefits that that we draw and some of the uh, how much we enjoy the atmosphere of the mountain. I think it can be done outside of a race too. So mm. I hope to link some races together with some outdoor adventuring. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that before on the podcast that it doesn't always have to be a race. It just has to be some time on your feet and and enjoy the journey. And so I, yeah. I hope I hope to do some of that and and keep a fitness level and also a relationship with people and uh, the environment. 
Hey, yeah. hey, Donna, I, I, that that was a perfect ending to the podcast, but I still have another question, some other questions. Okay. So we're going to kind of rewind this. If if I had any editorial skills, because I'm going to be doing the editing on this podcast, I would somehow take these questions and move them back into the podcast. Talk to me about the importance of of crew and pace, pacers. Could you have a pacer at this race? No pace. Yeah, no pacers. Um, they, they, uh, don't allow pacers, but the but crew was essential. There were some people co- going with the crew and some without, uh, historically I've, I've gone a lot of these races on the 200s without a crew or without a pacer. So, um, but I'm so glad that Donna was out there as my, as my crew, because she made a trip. I was getting a bit tired of my uh, boiled ham and, <laughs> and she had mentioned in her race, um, uh, like Bill Carr, a uh, local runner that we have carried some cheeseburgers in her in her in his pack from McDonald's, and so did she. And she said it is the best. And I said, oh, what I would give for a cheeseburger, right? Uh, besides your pizza that you sent, Scott. Um, <laughs> so she said, it just so happens I'm driving by because there was great cell coverage up there. That's one thing that was nice. Um, she says it just so happens I'm driving by McDonald's here in about five minutes. And I said, oh, great. Can you please order me? Here's, here's what I ordered. And, and I haven't had McDonald's in 20 years, right? And sometimes I'm tempted. There's great childhood memories of the Golden Arches. And, and then I walk by and kind of smell part of the, um, um, the dumpster in the back. And I said, no, I'm not going to eat the McDonald's. Um, I said, oh, can you please order me two Big Macs, two quarter pounders with cheese, two cheeseburgers, a chocolate shake, and fries. She goes, do you want anything else? <laughs> that was your, their, your type of accent, Scott. Yeah. And uh, I, she, she said, how about some chicken McNuggets? I said, yeah, put those in too. Um, 39 euro. That's what it cost for McDonald's. Wow. 30, I, the conversion is like 1.2. So, I mean, I think I had like $45 of $50 of McDonald's food. I, I want to know, I mean, there's a picture, and we will put that in the show notes, of you sitting at a table with all this McDonald's food. Did you eat all of that? No. There was okay. no way I could eat all that. They had a Big Mac, though, that was like a, a Big Mac Plus. It was That's the one I ate. It had 750 calories, so good calories. And But there was some um, uh, people you know, some Italian people that were coming around taking my picture, like, look at this American. And they were showing their friends my picture of me eating this. This, <laughs> this is what Americans McDonald's. do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we assumed that would happen. American comes and he has to have his McDonald's. <laughs> hey, um, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, you're over there. There, You said there were 12 other people from the United States. Did you see them? Uh, 20, was there... 27. Oh, I'm sorry, 27. Was there any kind of solidarity or any kind of, of connection with with uh, with that group? Uh, Nine hundred and thirty runners. You don't see them too much, but Bob, being the the uh, um, wonderful ambassador that he is, Crowley uh, invited them all to dinner mm-hmm. the the uh, night before the race, and so we had a number of them show up, and we ate pizza and. And uh, we talked and, and met one another. And we saw Stephanie Case there. Mm-hmm. She came to dinner as well. Oh, that's she great. She came fourth, fourth this year. She did fantastic. Yeah, she's run this course a, a number of times, hasn't she? Yeah, yes. 
There's one thing I, I would like to add. Maybe the best way to, to end this podcast is to talk about the beginning of the race. Mm. So it's full circle. Mm. Um, the 930 runners all in the middle of this town with people lined through the streets. I mean, literally, as much excitement on their end, on the outside of the, of the race, as the racers themselves. And we take off, and, and they're clapping, and some people are on ladders and then balconies. And I've, I held up my iPhone. I ran for you know a few minutes with my iPhone above my head filming this, and I'll share that with you guys, because it is such an amazing start of a race. If the race finished right when we went out of town and started on the single track, I would have been satisfied just, <laughs> just from that. Just to get in the middle of 930 runners and have the entire town yelling and screaming and making noise with gadgets and the level of excitement as it starts off at 12 noon. So everybody is up and everybody is out. Um, that is something that every runner should experience one time in their life to get in the middle of that. Andy, I can see from your smile on your face yeah. that you you are looking to see what it takes to get into the middle of, of this race. <laughs> I, I have to I have to admit, and, and I mean, I, I wrote a thing and I run far last week about running really far. I mean, I've been intrigued by the 200 milers here. And of course, I've been talking to Candace about those. But I mean, this is this has kind of put me over the top, I have to admit. <laughs> uh, and and it actually makes me feel good that it's predominantly a hiking race because I've been doing a lot more of that recently anyway. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it it is. It's it. It is a hiking race. It is a tour of, of of these giant mountains, and it's something that I think you would embrace and just love. And I would encourage anybody that's out there that's looking to do something like this to absolutely don't hesitate. Do it because it is quite an experience, and, and I would I would just love for people to to share in it because it's that good. Hey, hey, Don. We, we, you and I have talked about this offline, but tell tell us a little bit about you. You trained with a hypoxico altitude tent. Did, yeah. Explain. Do you think that that was a benefit? Would you recommend that to Andy, who's going to be running Tour de Johns next year? And Paul, Paul Dylan Bowman over at uh, Hypoxico, since you're going to be running this next year, and get yourself a few months of training with that thing. Um, putting the mask on and dialing into 12,000 feet and putting yourself on a Stairmaster, uh, uh, a treadmill that's cranked up to maximum is just perfect for it. Uh, the highest I was up was 11,400 feet, but so it's not you know super. It's not a 14er, but I never had any problem with with oxygen. And anytime you can load yourself with some more red blood cells, it's got to be good. And so that we eliminated, at least we eliminated that issue. There was no issue. So thanks to Hypoxico for, for allowing me to train on that. So that was, that was good. Well, Don, we, uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your, uh, vacation. What a way to see Europe. And I, I thought this as I was running several times as I bounced into some towns and, you know, many people come to Europe and they, they see the Eiffel Tower or they see the the many different sightseeing check, check, check. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've done that. Now, you know, many people come to Europe and they they go to destination, one spot to the next. And they wait in line. They pay admission. They walk through a building or they take their picture by an iconic spot. This is a way to see Europe. Uh, I'm not saying that that isn't wonderful. I think you should do both. 
it, being able to run through the mountain and drop into villages and see how people really live and a shepherd with his sheep and see a, a set of cows out there with bells on. This is, this is a way to see Europe. Of all of all of the 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 phone conversations and the texts that I received from Don, I will say my favorite is a photo of he and his eldest daughter Sydney standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and with a text that said "What DNF?" Yeah, that was <laughs> um, that, I love I, that. that. Yeah, I, I got I got the chills from that one. Uh, uh, but but almost as much as the metaphor for life uh, <laughs> with the Eiffel Tower in the back. Uh, I still don't I still don't quite understand it. But, uh, that's 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 probably more my problem than yours. <laughs> well, as, as soon as I wrote that, Andy, I realized I was writing it to you and Scott. Sometimes I can snow Scott on on something like that. But I realized I was giving it to the headmaster of a school and he probably knows the definition of metaphor and analogy. <laughs> I probably mis misused it. Uh. It does put things into perspective. You know, if, if you, if, as, as I had texted to Candace, she says it's about the um, experience, not the outcome. Right. And as she was talking about letting me down easy from a DNF and it was a great experience and the outcome uh, was perfect for the experience that I had. Well, and I have to say, I, I, anybody anybody who's had to grapple with the aftermath of a DNF would definitely benefit from listening to this conversation because I think so much of, of dealing with the DNF is your, your post-race mindset and finding a way to get to a place of optimism and hope uh, in the midst of, a, of, of what can be a, an experience of despair. And it's really great to see that you've gotten to that place so quickly, uh, you know, once that flips, that switch flipped and you found yourself, you know, coming off that mountain uh, without the bib on anymore, uh, you were already in the process of, uh, of re, re, uh, sort of birth out of that. And that's part of why I was asking about what's next, because I think whatever's next, even if it's a big, long, fast pack through the San Juans of Colorado, it will be informed by this experience. And I think positively and optimistically informed. There's your ending, Scott. And with that, go out and run. Mas. Or hike.